This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Matthew Sussex. Matthew is an Associate Professor at the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Matthew is an expert on Russia and international security. He joined me to give clarity on what's happening in Russia's war against Ukraine, including Russia's withdrawal from Kherson, how Russia is waging war, as well as explaining President Vladimir Putin's worldview and how this informs his war strategy. And it is my absolute delight and pleasure to welcome onto the show Dr. Matthew Sussex. Matthew is based at Griffith University. He's an associate professor there at the Griffith Asia Institute, and he is an expert on all things Russia. That's probably oversimplifying his expertise quite a lot. I'll let Matthew give you the lowdown on that, but I did want to give everyone an idea of what we'll be discussing in this conversation. It's been a little while since we last talked about Russia's aggression towards Ukraine and the war that's now raging in Ukraine, but there have been some major developments in the last week, including Russia's withdrawal from Kherson and a whole lot more. And someone who's been writing about all of this for the conversation is Dr. Matthew Sussex. There are a couple of really excellent articles that Matthew's recently put out, including why Putin's retreat from Kherson could be his most humiliating defeat yet, as well as could Russia collapse? A very, very good question. So I welcome onto the program, Matthew Sussex. Hi there, Matthew. And how are you doing today? Hi, Amy. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm really glad to talk about these issues in more detail to get an idea of your expertise and what you study and, and write about more broadly, what has drawn you to Russia and what in particular have you been looking at professionally in your academic career? Well, it's funny. Um, I, I actually came via a, a roundabout family connection to Russia. My father used to be professor of Russian language at Melbourne Uni, and I spent most of my teenage years saying that I would do absolutely anything but Russia. Uh, <laughs> then I um, then I found out uh, in my last couple of years of school that I was uh, no good at maths and no good at physics uh, and no good at chemistry. So I wasn't going to be an immunologist. And uh, so, so basically, I, um, I specialized in Russian foreign policy uh, and diplomatic history and international relations. So uh, yeah, Russia has always held a sort of fascination for me partly in terms of the culture and the history and the language of the place, uh, but also uh, given that my main specialization, sort of international security, um, is, is just how, how Russia behaves in the international environment. And I think there was a lot of optimism after the collapse of the USSR uh, and uh, you know, the, the end of bipolar confrontation between the West and the Warsaw Pact that, you know, that was going to usher in a sort of new era of cooperation. But uh, over the years, we saw that, you know, Russia really didn't handle its transition all that well, um, that domestic, social, economic problems just sort of compounded to the point where by the time Vladimir Putin took over, and this is a while ago now, this is, of course, 2000, the Russians really were very disillusioned with democracy. They were disillusioned with capitalism. Uh, and they were looking for someone who would restore Russian greatness. And I think Vladimir Putin is the kind of person who could promise that to uh, to Russia. Now, whether he's achieved it or not, I don't know. Perhaps the early signs were promising, but 
it does look to me as though perhaps he's he's reached his high watermark here with this war in Ukraine that he's launched. Mm, absolutely. I would love to get your views, your take on Vladimir Putin as a leader and his worldview, his mindset around Russia and Ukraine and the surrounding states, because I know that he's been outlining his views about history, and this seems to inform some of his actions, especially at the moment with this war in Ukraine. So could you take us through some of what you think might be quite revealing for us about his behaviour right now based on what he's been saying and how he views history? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, Putin is a guy who early on in his presidency, his very first presidency, he seemed to come across as just an arch pragmatist, as someone who would use any type of ideology to his own benefit. So even when he took over, there was a lot of discussion and debate about whether this guy who was, you know, former KGB man in uh, in East Germany um, was going to be, you know, a shadowy dictator type character or whether he was, you know, more like the more recent job he'd had, which was the uh, the chief of staff to the reformist liberal democratic mayor of St. Petersburg, a guy called Anatoly Sobchak. And uh, we saw many faces, and we've seen many faces of Putin over the years. Sometimes um, one who claims to profess you know, democratic principles and pluralism and so forth, but it's really been in about the last 10 years or so that his view, his worldview has seemed to to shift. And it's shifted progressively towards what you probably refer to as, as Eurasianism, or that's what it's often called in, in the, uh, the research field. But more than that, it's, it's a sort of hyper-Russian nationalism, because Eurasianism by itself just doesn't cut it. Eurasianism is, is saying that Russia belongs to its own region. It's not Western, it's not Asian, it's, it's its own special place. But Putin's worldview, I think, is, is very much of, of Russian exceptionalism, one where Russia is the sort of meeting place of different civilizations. Russia unifies all these people, otherwise they'd be at each other's throat. This is the view espoused by a lot of Russian nationalists, that Russia is a sort of third Rome. And you see this reflected in the speeches that Putin gives and also the things that he he writes. Last year, he penned, or at least he supposedly penned, uh, an essay, that uh, historical essay, that was fairly sort of rambling screed, but it said, among other things, that Ukrainians really didn't deserve full sovereignty unless it was in partnership with Russia, that Ukrainians didn't really have an identity, a culture, a language, or any traditions. They were They were effectively Russians. And you see that in a lot of the rhetoric he's come up with since invading on February 24th, you know, the idea that, that he was sort of recreating a sort of new kind of Russia based on Peter the Great and past imperial triumphs. And he basically came out and said that, you know, that all his protestations about NATO enlargement being the chief thing that he was concerned about that, you know, there was an existential security threat because of NATO and he had no option but to invade, all that's rubbish. Effectively, he said that what he is doing is is recreating the Russian Empire, that this is our territory and we are taking it back. 
So I think that's a bit of an insight into into Putin the man, who is often, I think, misread as uh, that sort of pragmatic character, a sort of geopolitical mastermind. Whereas in reality, he he seems to demonstrate, at least to me, that uh, that he's much more of a sort of more hardcore nationalist, someone who is in fact impacted by ideology and by history in a way that that makes him want to recreate the Russia of old. Thank you for explaining it so well. It makes me wonder, do the other states that Russia sees as kind of part of its realm, do they have reason to be worried or concerned? Oh, absolutely. Um, And they had reason to be worried and concerned before Russia invaded, or at least properly invaded. Uh, It's effectively, you know, had a hand in uh, invading Ukraine since 2014, um, eight years um, yeah, if if you're one of the Baltic states, then certainly you have cause for concern. Uh, at times, the Russian Air Force was violating Estonian airspace a couple of hundred times a year as a sort of demonstration of strength. If you are Poland, even, then you have cause for concern that Russia views Poland as the kind of country that needs to be, you know, integrated into, if not Russian territory, then into a Russia-centric orbit, security orbit. It must be naturally friendly to Russia or it can be neutral, but no sort of closeness to the West. And of course, if you're Georgia as well, then uh, you have plenty of reason to be worried. Dmitry Medvedev, the, uh, the interim Russian president between various Putins, has recently been referring to Georgia and to Kazakhstan as uh, effectively not real states at all, just, you know, statelets awaiting the recapture, their recapture by Russia. So, yeah, uh, it's not just Ukraine that needs to be concerned about this. It's a lot of other independent sovereign states that used to be part of the USSR. It also takes me back to that time you mentioned earlier on, as you say, about eight years ago, when Russia was taking territory from Ukraine, including I think it was Crimea. Could you talk to us a little bit about how Russia had already taken some of this territory and how that relates back to Kherson in a location sense? Because there does seem to be some kind of interconnection in the strategy around the area of Kherson for Russia. Yeah, sure. I mean, so what happened after the events of the uh, the revolution in the Maidan Square in Ukraine in Kiev, where the former president uh, Yanukovych was kicked out and he fled to Russia, is that uh, Moscow took over Crimea using sort of hybrid warfare tactics and uh, you know, prompted a lot of, of academic writing about you know winning by not fighting through these sort of friendly green men who appeared on the streets of Sevastopol and Simferopol basically overnight. And the Russians were fairly easily able to capture Crimea. And the reason they wanted that was because that's where their Black Sea fleet is headquartered. And if they didn't have that, then they wouldn't have reliable access to the Black Sea, which is something that they see as very important for for Russian power projection. Now, Kherson is a sort of strategic waypoint between Crimea and Russia proper. And if you can't control Kherson, then you can't really, if you're Russia, that is, then you can't really conduct offensive military operations to the West. So you also, in fact, put Crimea itself at risk if you don't control Kherson, because the Ukrainians will, you know, now that they've captured, recaptured the city, 
that brings Crimea itself, which has previously been a safe haven for Russian military personnel and you know Russian tourists, and a lot of, a lot of Russians emigrated there, around half a million, I think, to uh, to live in Crimea because it's by the sea, it's nice, you know. It puts them in in range of Ukrainian long range artillery and and missiles, so Crimea mm-hmm. is vulnerable, and Russia's war plans are, are vulnerable too. Because what Russia wanted to do was to do this sort of Crimean corridor, which linked up Crimea with the territories that it had annexed to itself in the Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and basically shut Ukraine out of the sea, which would have made Ukraine basically a a landlocked rump state. Uh, Ukraine exports an enormous amount of grain. Together with Russia, they export 30% of the world's grain. So blocking it out of the sea would have made it impoverished um, mm. and uh, would have led to, to sort of real dominance by Moscow. Um, so the fall of Kherson is a, is a really big deal. And it means that, that Russia has effectively said, okay, well, we're going to have to shelve our war plans. We're withdrawing to the west bank of the Dnipro River. And uh, it's unlikely that they're going to go on the offensive again anytime soon. Yeah, it's an amazing development. And in your piece, you draw this distinction, which clearly exists between Kherson, the city, and then Kherson, the broader region surrounding the city. And you point out the significance strategically of the river and, you know, the location of it as being this kind of point where the Ukrainian military or soldiers would find it difficult to take further territory because the river is there blocking them and the Russians being on the other side, but also that Ukraine might now have a a kind of upper hand in a sense because they will now have control over a great deal of the water supply of the people of Crimea. Could you explain to us some of the strategic thinking and calculations that are being made at the moment around not only, you know, these natural elements that exist around the Kherson region, but also, you know, more broadly how this fits into the war strategy? Yeah, well, about 85% of, of Crimea's fresh water comes from something called the North Crimean Canal. And the Ukrainians, after they lost Crimea to the Russians in 2014, responded by damming the canal, which basically meant they had no fresh water. And so so water has, in fact, been a, a very much a key to Russian strategy. One of the reasons that Putin was so quick to incorporate Kherson, not just the city, but the oblast, the region, uh, into Russia proper in his annexation speech of uh, September was that the Crimean Canal would be able to provide Crimea with fresh water. Because, of course, a couple of days after invading uh, Ukraine on February uh, 26th, I think it was, the invasion was the 24th, the, the Russians blew up the dam that the Ukrainians had built, uh, bringing fresh water back into Crimea. So this is something that really does shape the geopolitics of the region. And it it also, of course, shapes the livelihoods of people who live there because without that access to fresh water, it has to be brought in to Crimea from Russia. One way you can do that is across the Kirsch Bridge that the Russians built. Um, And uh, you can bring it in by by train uh, or, you know, on, on lots of trucks. But, of course, the Ukrainians blew that up or blew part of it up and uh, and makes that vulnerable. So, you know, water and, and access to food, you know, all of these types of things are, you know, really important security dynamics, if you like, and security threats in themselves. So 
you know, Russia can do things like blockade Ukrainian ports and stop it from shipping grain and uh, effectively play hunger games with, uh, with the clients of Ukrainian grain, you know, trying to get them to, to put pressure on the Ukrainian government. But, you know, Ukraine can fight back with, uh, you know, withholding the supply of fresh water to Crimea. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of not just the conflict now, but if there is a sort of peace settlement of some kind, then that supply of fresh water is going to be very, very important. Um, so there would be, have to be, you know, guarantees from the Ukrainian side, and um, they could probably extract quite a lot of concessions with that. So you, you see, in many respects, these things have knock-on effects, and they have you know, sort of snowballing effects, I suppose, that, that can increase a country's standing or decrease its standing as well. I was particularly interested in your remark in your piece about the concerns of Kherson locals around the potential for Russian troops to impersonate friendly Ukrainians or soldiers. So the sense that perhaps as part of retaliation or a way to get back into Kherson, the city, they may use different strategies like pretending to be not a Russian soldier. How likely do you think it is that Russia might deploy these tactics on a kind of broader scale? Because I know there has been concerns for a little while now at a smaller level, kind of here and there. But I wonder, do you think this could become a kind of more widespread tactic that's used? Yeah, like it could be, particularly if Russia continues to retreat. And and that's the big thing, you know, with the, the, the river being a natural obstacle and a natural defensive barrier, it does make it very difficult for the Ukrainians to get across and continue their counteroffensive to recapture land. But you now, if they can do that, or in particular if they do that in the north of the country, then you might see that type of tactic used by the Russians, particularly because you're starting to get into those regions of the country where you would have, well, for want of a better word, sort of more Russia-friendly people, I suppose, amongst the population. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of or number of Ukrainians who, who are sort of pro-Russian has decreased, you know, across the board, particularly when they've been the targets of, of Russian uh, airstrikes and, uh, and artillery. But you, you do see, you would see people in the Donbass region, particularly who, who are you know, sympathetic towards Moscow. And it might well be that, you know, being forced to abandon cities and towns, that there might be an attempt to to create a sort of insurgency type of movement, particularly mm-hmm. since, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk both have their own effective militias anyway, which have been operating for eight years, funded by the Russians. And, uh, you know, the potential for that to, to become a sort of terrorist insurgent campaign is, is certainly one that the Ukrainian Defence Ministry was alive to with uh, the Kyoson issue. They thought that there had been very large numbers of Russian service people who had, you know, melted into the population and were going to conduct urban war and were going to make the city impossible to uh, govern, let alone live in, really. Mm. Um, now, that hasn't transpired yet, but it is always a possibility. And if you're, you know, someone like Vladimir Putin who believes in if you can't win to sow as much chaos as possible, that's potentially a tactic you would look to. One other tactic seems to be, in other areas, kamikaze drones. It was kind of amazing to watch this footage of a drone, you know, flying by and essentially like ploughing into buildings and and other areas in Ukraine. 
I wondered how common is this as a part of warfare nowadays? And do you think that that's another area that Russia is changing or upping their their strategy in? And are there other kind of concerning uses of weaponry and, and other munitions? Are there new ways of doing warfare at the moment that Russia is escalating into the conflict? Yeah, look, I mean, these are these are Iranian-made drones, um, these sort of loitering munitions, which um, are, they are particularly nasty because they can circle over a target and then just be programmed to dive into them. They're not actually very sophisticated. They're really cheap, in fact. You can make one for, uh, I think it's about $10,000. It has fairly rudimentary guidance systems. It's powered by a petrol motor, and uh, it, it can fly around for as long as it's got fuel and uh, you know high explosive in, in the front of it, um, which just you know causes a, a massive, great big explosion. Now, the Russians, I think, were forced to use this because they had shot through a lot of their precision-guided munitions. And they'd shot them at Ukrainian cities and towns and infrastructure. And this this follows the, the Russian offensive manoeuvres playbook, which is to say that uh, you use weapons like this to create fear in the population and you grind down their will to fight. Now, what we saw, um, in fact, is, of course, it's made the Ukrainians want to fight more um, rather than, uh, than, than sort of, uh, you know, demoralising them. But I expect that um, Surovikin, who is the general, or the current general in charge, who knows for how long, because they keep getting replaced, yeah. with, uh, you know, Russia's Ukraine war, you know, he, he seems to have a penchant for them. Um, the, the Russians have ordered mm. a lot more. There's a factory in Iran that's producing them for Russia. So, yeah, you know, uh, you'd expect them to, to continue to be em- employed. Other things that Russia has developed but not used certainly do sort of skirt the boundaries of what's regarded as sort of acceptable legally uh, and in terms of the the treaties that it's signed. Um, One of them in particular is the Poseidon drone submarine, which was unveiled, I think, in 2018 by Putin as one of his wonder weapons. One of the things Putin has done since 2010, the end of uh, the the conflict with Georgia in the five-day war, is to undertake this great big military modernization campaign. And one of the products of that was uh, this drone submarine, unmanned, and you can put a nuclear warhead on it. And uh, effectively, it's to destroy coastal cities. The big nuclear war, great big nuclear warhead goes off under sea, and it creates a tsunami, and that tsunami swamps the city. So Putin announced this with the words, nobody listened to us, well, listen to us now. Um, and these things are being uh, tested and deployed in the Kola Peninsula around the Arctic, uh, around Russia's Arctic regions, and you know suggested that they're you know sort of first strike weapon, if Russia wanted to demonstrate that it could destroy a um, a city on a coast somewhere. So that's the sort of other end of the spectrum, I suppose. At the one end, you've got very cheap Iranian drones, which can cause havoc and destroy buildings, and at the, at the other end. You've got these sophisticated drone submarines, which could potentially destroy an entire city. Yeah, it sounds like it has the potential to be 
apocalyptic for whichever city it was deployed against. It does make me think about Mariupol because they seem to be close to at least a body of water. And I know that that was one of these key battlegrounds a few months ago. And there were certainly allegations around potential war crimes or crimes against humanity with the civilian population in Ukraine. Do you know where Mariupol is at in this broader war strategy um, and whether that's still kind of a focus for the Russians at the moment? Well, look, Mariupol used to be, you know, a thriving, bustling port city and uh, it it effectively doesn't exist anymore. It's been bombed to smithereens, uh, mainly because it was the home of the uh, Azov steel plant and it's where the the Azov defenders, the Azov uh, regiment, of Ukraine, which Russia sees as, you know, the leading Nazis in Ukraine were uh, were holding out. So Russia demonstrated that it was prepared to, to completely level the city. Now, getting Mariupol back is probably something the Ukrainians want to do. But in terms of strategic value, uh, it's probably a, a fair way down the track before, you know, that becomes particularly useful. One other thing that I was thinking about um, around strategy is, well, the key city of Ukraine, the capital city, Kiev, because I saw on the news last night quite a few young teenagers beginning university who've been trained up for just a few days, essentially um, patrolling the area in and out of Kiev. It seems that not only, you know, are the Russians kind of conscripting young people and necessarily in Ukraine, that's something that's had to happen there as well. And I was wondering, how far out are the Russians from the capital? And do you think there's any way that they could either seek to enter it by ground or whether they want to destroy any part of it by air? Like, do you think there are plans or at least potential for retaliation by focusing on a symbol like Kiev? Yeah, look, I mean, certainly the Russians have um, hit Kiev on a number of occasions when they wanted to show their displeasure. Uh, And that was particularly after the the partial destruction of the Kirsch Bridge across to Crimea. And, you know, it it would probably happen again. The Russians do tend to to view this as a legitimate retaliation, whereas, you know, we'd say, well, these are civilian population centres. And that's not, you know, very sporting let alone, you know, ethical or morally uh, or morally permissible. But on the question of, of sort of young people, uh, yeah, certainly Kiev uh, is, is a place that, you know, you, you need to sort of patrol. It is a fair way, I suppose a fair way is, yeah, reasonable to, to say from, from the actual fighting at the moment. It's fairly close to Belarus. And if the Russians were to open another front through Belarus, then potentially Kiev would come under risk again. But then, you know, effectively what the Ukrainians are, are doing is that they've sent the majority of their forces to the east of the country, uh, leaving not an, an enormous amount left in Kiev. I suppose the difference is that, you know, whereas uh, the Ukrainians are drafting younger and older people, they tend to be deployed in places where there isn't a lot of fighting, whereas the, the, the Russians are sending mobilised people just straight into the meat grinder in the front. So, you know, I suppose that's a point of difference between the two in, in, in terms of sort of morality uh, and war. But, uh, yeah, you know, Kiev, it, it's not, not necessarily out of the woods yet. And if you've Vladimir Putin, you'd probably very much like to bring about regime change to get rid of Volodymyr Zelensky with a, a cruise missile strike. But the Russians really haven't proven to be very good at that. 
they also haven't proven to be all that good at uh, attempted assassinations you know, on the ground. So uh, there was a big fear that Zelensky would be the target of, of an assassin, you know, left behind or pro, pro-Russian pro um, militia left behind in Kiev. Uh, that hasn't happened so far. Uh, it may happen yet. We don't know. But generally speaking, at the moment, Kiev is, is sort of out of the line of direct hostilities. You've mentioned there around the younger people and their difference in approach to where at least they're positioned and utilised in the war. And I was wondering about, in particular, Russia and morale, because that does seem to link back to the use of these younger conscripts. The fact that there seems to be very little training, not a lot of organisation around the camps that they're putting them in. It does sound like a rather demoralising situation for some, at least the way that it's been portrayed on the news. And I was wondering, you know, what is the sense of morale, if we know at all, around the Russian forces at the moment? Because we clearly know, you know, what the morale is with the Ukrainians. They have a steely determination as they have since the very beginning. Yeah, I'm very curious about that, not just because of the sense of having to open up to conscripts, but also since this defeat with Kherson and the withdrawal, whether that has been affecting morale in domestic Russia. Yeah, well, look, I mean... Uh, it's estimated that about 700,000 Russians have fled the country. So, you know, those with the wherewithal to get out have done so. And that includes large numbers of people who would be fighting age. Um, Now, fighting age covers a multitude of of age groups nowadays in Russia uh, because it used to be that the maximum fighting age was 40. The Russian parliament a few months ago this is, I guess, indicative of the, the types of losses that they were sustaining, raised the maximum age for military service to 65 years, which is, you know, quite significant. Um, it's practically retirement age, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, these, these are people now who can, can be mobilised at, uh, you know, fairly advanced age and often with lots of medical problems. And uh, you know, there are even reports of... of uh, bloke who was you know 60 years old and was blind and got his call-up papers and uh, you know, they refused to take no for an answer. I mean, in some cases, the, the mobilisation has been done in a way that is you know, relatively professional. It all depends on the local region. But in others, it's been just completely haphazard. And particularly when you consider that people who did go out and demonstrate against mobilisation... They weren't necessarily against the war, but they certainly didn't want to be sent to the front lines of it. And that's not unusual. Look, I mean, in, in the United States, it was sentiment against the draft in the Vietnam War that, that really brought that home as a domestic political issue. And it's starting to do the same thing in, in Russia. But, you know, there are people who would go to protest against being mobilised who would then immediately, after being taken to the police station, be called up into uh, the armed forces. So you you get booked for protesting and then you get a one-way ticket to to the recruitment centre. So <laughs> these are hardly people who are going to want to fight. And they're not people who are, you know, going to going to sort of be be great tools of of the next Russian offensive. But the problem is that that it does seem that a large amount of Russia's conventional capacity that is its sort of professional army that's been sent to Ukraine a lot of it is really tired, um, hasn't had a break. Now, Russia's used about 60% of its total conventional military capabilities in, in Ukraine. 
And uh, that's a lot, particularly since Russia also says it, you know, needs enough, um, you know, in its back pocket to guard against the potential for, who knows, fighting NATO or whatever. So that's a, a lot of its military that down the track is going to take decades to replace. But in the near term, because they are fought out, because they're tired, because they're often not uh, provided with, you know, adequate uh, food, uh, munitions, shelter, you know, the things that they need to be an effective fighting force, that contributes to low morale as well. Um, and it's patchy. It's in, in some places of the front. You'll find people who, you know, are units that are well taken care of and they're fine. But in other places, you do find people who are, you know, really badly demoralized. There was a report of uh, one group of mobilized people sent to Ukraine who were being shelled by Ukrainian artillery. Um, and there are about 300 of them, and they had three shovels between them to dig trenches, you know, effectively sending them to, to slaughter, I suppose, is, is the mm. right way of saying it. And part of it is logistic problems with the Russian army. Part of it is the fact that this call-up has happened very quickly. But uh, a big part of it is that it just hasn't been planned properly. I'm speaking with Dr. Matthew Sussex from Griffith University. Matthew, I also just wanted to touch on the threat of nuclear weapons because that's clearly been hanging over us for quite a while, especially around this conflict. There was a development where Xi Jinping, the president of China, and Olaf Scholz, who's the chancellor of Germany, they met up in early November. And it appears that, or according to at least German media, the way that they were framing it was that meeting essentially extracted a, a kind of concession from China, a clear warning from China to Russia that they shouldn't use nuclear weapons in this conflict. That was seen as a development. And I wonder, you know, whether that's your assessment as well, whether you thought that might have been a significant moment at all, whether China has any sway over Russia and whether that threat is I know it's a hard thing to assess, but whether that threat is even likely or possible. Yeah, I mean, nuclear weapons are, of course, the great big unknown here. Russia has been waving its nuclear weapons around since about 2008, regularly threatening the West, whether it does this thing or that thing, that it might use nuclear weapons. And of course, this reached uh, an absolute zenith you know, just about a month or so ago. Former President Medvedev in Russia reportedly said that Russia would consider nuclear strikes if its service people were hauled off for war crimes uh, tribunals, which is an extraordinary thing to say. Um, but mm. in particular, there was a lot of innuendo and a lot of speculation about Russia using tactical nukes to try and break the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. The problem with that, of course, is that tactical nuclear weapons, they're fairly small. They will cause a lot of damage, but you're going to need to use a fair few of them in order to, to punch holes in the Ukrainian lines because the, the conflict zone goes for about 1,500 kilometres. So, yeah, you'll need to use a fair few of them, and the Russian troops that follow on would need to be able to operate in that kind of nuclear environment. You know, and the question is, well, if you're Russia, do you want to cross the Rubicon and become only the second state to use nuclear weapons in anger? and probably use quite a lot more than the Americans used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So there's that question in the mind of, of Putin, I think, you know, is it of any military value to use them? There's also a sort of political question, and that is, well, if he uses nuclear weapons, what does NATO do? 
And I think if he does use nuclear weapons, then yes, NATO does get involved, not necessarily with nuclear strikes. But I think President Biden made it fairly clear that if Russia were to go nuclear, then there would be significant conventional uh, responses by the United States. Um, if not its allies, then just the United States against, you know, Russian military targets. And that's that's quite unequivocal. That means that basically NATO comes in to some extent into the war and it hastens the defeat of Russia. There's no other way to to, to view it strategically un, unless Putin is then prepared to take the next step and, you know, use nuclear weapons against cities. And I'm not sure about that. I, I tend to think that yeah, there's a lot of debate about whether Putin is rational or whether he's lost his mind. and Or if he's sick. Or whether he's sick, you know, <laughs> yeah. is he going to die tomorrow or next week or in three mm. years? Look, for me, you, you can't tell. You can't ever tell. Anyone who thinks that they know whether or not Putin will use nukes, I think, is is kidding themselves and you. But I do know that Putin is a very wealthy, wealthy man. And, and, and wealthy men, particularly men, like to have their wealth and be alive to enjoy it. So I'm not sure Putin wants to commit suicide. Now, did the Germans, did the Chinese persuade Putin not to use nukes? Certainly China is going to loom very large in Russia's post-war fortunes because effectively Putin and the West are done um, and Russia and anyone who agrees with Putin uh, and the West are, are done. So Russia is going to be drawn very much into the Chinese orbit, which does give Beijing a lot of sway. That said, I don't think it's as simple as Xi Jinping being able to pick up the phone and say, hey, Vlad, don't <laughs> use the nukes, because Putin would be time to get lost and he'd make up his own mind one way or the other. So they do have influence, I think, the Chinese, but I don't think necessarily it's decisive. So to an extent, I think that's been overplayed by Germany. It, it may well be that, that China has communicated to, to Moscow that it doesn't want to see this happen. But it's not the same thing as as controlling what Putin does. So yeah. um, uh, if any country does have influence in Russia, it is China. It's not no Western country, certainly. But that's that's not necessarily the same thing as, as being able to tell a guy what to do and have him obey. Just finally, Matthew, I was reflecting on a comment that I heard David Kilcullen make a couple of months ago now in an ABC interview. I'm not sure if you heard it either, but he was talking about the Western powers and their involvement and also thinking about what is their grand strategy for the war and how they're involved or not involved and how they see it playing out or ending. What is the end game and are they working towards that or is this more of a reactive process to whatever the developments are on the ground? And I guess a lot of people might have that question or in some kind of form, how does this end? I wanted to get your views on that. You know, what you think the situation is, is there a cohesive or concerted strategy from the Western powers who are aligned with the Ukraine to try and seek a resolution? Or do you think there's less of a clear and planned out way of approaching this issue? Because I know, you know, diplomacy was at the very beginning part of the solution. And we saw Emmanuel Macron meet with Vladimir Putin quite a lot before the war started. I guess I wanted to get your sense of the vision for how this might end and the different players and how they see the end game? Yeah, that's an absolutely excellent question, Amy. Um, and in, in thinking about it, a couple of things come to mind. The, the first thing is it's kind of hard to have grand strategy when it's not your war. 
And it's it's not the West's war on on a number of accounts. One, the West isn't doing any fighting. It's providing weapons and doing some cheering and providing some money and some humanitarian assistance, but but it's not doing any fighting. The other part to that is, of course, is that the West didn't want the war and uh, it didn't launch it. It's Vladimir Putin that launched it. So this comes back to the sort of the, the second observation I'd make, and that is that if diplomacy is to work, then the individual who instigated the war has to want it. So so Putin has to want peace. And at the moment, I don't think he really has much of an incentive to go to the bargaining table because he continues to lose ground and he's, he's lost half of the territory that, that Russian forces captured since February 24. And that continues to shrink. And domestically, this plays very, very badly for him because you, you can't go home and say, look, we've won this great victory. We've secured the people of Donbass and Luhansk and Kherson, well, not even Kherson, from, you know, Ukro fascists and, and have anyone believe you. And internationally, too, it makes him look foolish. So you, you might say that the, the impetus is on Putin to say, look, you know, uh, let's come to a, a diplomatic resolution. Let's end it now. But there's a sort of lot of sunk costs, I think, probably going on in his head about this, that, well, I've come this far, that I, I may, in fact, there is some speculation that Putin thinks he's winning still, uh, or, or that he's given the West a bloody nose via Ukraine. Put them on notice that there's no way that, you know, he's going to tolerate uh, Ukraine getting closer and closer and closer to the West. So there has to be that point, I think, when Putin or maybe someone who succeeds him says, okay, now we're going to negotiate. But even then, the West, just as Xi Jinping can't tell Putin what to do, the West can't necessarily tell Zelensky what to do. It denies Ukraine agency. And I think if you're Zelensky and you were to go to the bargaining table with the notion that, oh, yeah, I'll give back Crimea to the Russians, they can have it, and they can have Luhansk, and they can have Donetsk, and we'll just go back to the pre-war borders, he'd probably find himself arrested by his own people. It's something that, that would you know, be politically very, very dangerous for him to do. So this is the, the the issue that we face, that Russia is in a position now where it probably should be suing for peace but won't because mm. of Putin's hubris, where Ukraine probably could get a reasonable deal but won't because of the horrors that's been visited upon it, and where both the West and, and, and China don't necessarily have the decisive influence over the, the course of the conflict. So my guess is probably that this does play out militarily for a while possibly yeah, the next yeah. six months or so. Just kind of wearing each other down. Yeah, yeah, until it becomes manifestly obvious that one side's won and the other side is lost. Mm, like a war of attrition or something where like, if you just keep bombarding each other and waiting for someone to crack, someone who's suffering more. Yeah, and and, and look, then you probably do get a, a political settlement, uh, a political mm. settlement that's probably more on Ukraine's terms than Russian. But when you do get that political settlement, if there is any land that used to be Ukrainian that remain or remains or becomes Russian, then it kind of guarantees a frozen conflict. So this doesn't go away. This uh, unfortunately mm. carries on for a very long time, as, as long as we can foresee, I think. Yeah, it does make me think whether winter will provide that answer if it's going to sway the war in any kind of way, at least with the conditions that will appear for both sides. So I'll be very interested to, to see that play out. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Matthew, for sitting down to chat with me. 
It's just been really fascinating to speak with you about this in a whole lot more detail than we usually get to. And yeah, I really appreciate your time and expertise today. Yeah, really absolute pleasure, Amy. Thanks so much. I've just been speaking with Dr. Matthew Sussex. He's an associate professor at the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.